Come, let us worship God in the singing of Psalm 100. Psalm 100, version 1, to the tune Old 100. God and Heavenly Father, Thou that dost dwell in the high heavens, and Thou that hast been pleased to inhabit the praises of Thy people Israel, we come unto Thee in this hour, O Lord. We come unto Thee acknowledging that this is indeed a time of need, and so we approach Thy throne of grace in this hour through Thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We come in His merit, in His merit alone. And we beseech thee that thou wouldst be pleased to grant us mercy and grace. Be pleased to assist us, O Lord, that we might lay hold of thee in this hour. Assist us as new covenant priests that we might offer spiritual sacrifices unto thee in thy son's name. We ask these things in his name. Amen. may be seated and please turn with me. To Psalm 48. Psalm 48 will sing verses 1 through 5 and 10 through 11. Psalm 48. 
please turn in the scriptures to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, I'll be reading from verse 25 through 41, 9. Isaiah 40, 25 through 49. Let us hear God's word. To whom then will ye liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel? My way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God. Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fail. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Keep silence before me, O islands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, then let them speak. Let them come near together to judgment. Who raised up the righteous man from the east, called him to his foot, gave the nations before him, and made him rule over kings? He gave them as the dust to his sword, and as driven stubble to his bow, he pursued them and passed safely, even by the way that he had not gone with his feet. Who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and the last, I am he. The isle sought and feared, the ends of the earth were afraid, drew near. And came. They helped every one his neighbor, and every one said to his brother, Be of good courage. So the carpenter encouraged the goldsmith, and he that smootheth with the hammer him that smote the anvil, saying, It is ready for the soldering. And he fastened it with his nails, that it should not be moved. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Thou, whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. Amen. Let us now 
turn and turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, and we'll sing verses 49 through 52. Please rise for prayer. Let us pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, thou that dost dwell in the high and holy place, and thou that art pleased to dwell with those that are of a humble and a contrite heart, we come unto thee this day, O God, for holy, holy, holy is thy name, O Lord God Almighty which was and is and is to come, who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods, 
who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders, O Lord. We thank thee this day, O Heavenly Father, that thou hast delivered us from the power of darkness, and thou hast translated us to the kingdom of thy dear Son. We thank thee that in him we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, we come unto thee and to thy throne of grace, but we come acknowledging that it is a holy throne. And so we come acknowledging our sin before thee this day, O God. Lord, we acknowledge that though we are saints, we acknowledge we are still sinners. We confess unto thee, Lord, that we have not loved thee with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We acknowledge we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves, much less our enemies. We acknowledge, O Lord, that so often we even fail to love our brothers and sisters in Thee. We acknowledge, O Lord, how often we are so petty, how often we struggle at covering the multitude of sins. We acknowledge, O Lord, that we are so slow to forgive our brethren even when thou hast made it very, very clear that our forgiving of one another is a demonstration of our recognition of the great forgiveness that thou hast granted unto us. Oh, forgive us for these many transgressions this day, we plead. Lord, we acknowledge that if thou shouldest mark iniquity, oh Lord, who should stand But we thank thee that there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. O be pleased, O Lord, to speak unto each and every one of thy saints this day. May they hear the words of thy forgiveness. And may none of them, O Lord, take that forgiveness presumptuously to think that would lead them into sin but may we all recognize that it is because of thy forgiveness that should increase our fear and reverence for thee we pray for all those O Lord who know thee not in our midst Lord we pray that thou would speak conviction and encouragement and comfort May they see Jesus and may they come to embrace him as their friend and find that they are now his friend through faith, a faith in him that is not their own, but a gift of thee. Oh, be pleased, O Lord, to create in us a clean heart. Be pleased to renew a right spirit amongst us. Cast us not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from us, but, O, be pleased to restore unto us the joy of our salvation and be pleased to uphold us 
by thy free spirit. We plead with thee, O Lord, that thou might fill us with all knowledge of thy will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That we as thy people might walk worthy of thee, O Lord, unto all pleasing. That we might walk worthy of that high calling that thou hast called us to in Christ Jesus. May thou be pleased to cause us to be fruitful in every good work. May we increase in the knowledge of thee, O Lord. Might thou be pleased to strengthen us with all might, according to thy glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. Be pleased, O Lord. To do a work in us in this hour. As we reflect, O oh Lord, upon the slur, upon the slander placed upon Jesus, and yet a slander or a slur that he was willing to take to himself as the friend of sinners. May we all be comforted and challenged. As we reflect upon those words this day. And may thy beauty be upon us, O Lord. And may thou be pleased to establish the work of our hands. We plead in Christ's most precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Please turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, I'll be reading from verses 19 through 35. I want you all to be aware that there is a parallel to one of these sections here in Matthew. Mandwritten authors, how they place the various events of Christ's life and ministry, not in generally in Matthew and Luke, they're fairly chronological, right? But... Obviously, if you think of all the events of Jesus' ministry of 16 hours of waking hours in something in the order of 1,200 to 1,500 days, uh, they obviously don't cover everything, right? So it's interesting how Luke places, leaves out certain events that Matthew mentions, but then brings in other events. So you see the literary connections, and I want us to see that today as I read this brief section. So the first thing I want you to notice, the gospel of Luke, one of the emphases of Luke is Christ's interest in the outcasts and the marginalized. It's a dominant theme through that gospel. I think something else we sometimes miss uh, in all the gospels, but particularly in the, the three synoptics, is that Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee of the nations. It's already a hint that the gospel is going to go out to the nations. Sometimes we fail to recognize the darkness that existed in the region of Galilee. 
And here Jesus begins his ministry uh, in Galilee. And so in this chapter, uh, in verses 2 through 10, we find him in Capernaum. And we find him healing the centurion's servant at the request of the centurion. And we have the centurion's faith commended uh, in verse 9. Then we have him traveling south a little bit to the city of Nain. He comes upon the widow's son who's dead with no requests, but out of the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ, he raises that dead young man to life. Then at that point, Luke brings in this event where the disciples of John come. John is in prison. He's beginning to wonder. He's having a little doubts, apparently. He asks them to ask Jesus, are you the one? Jesus answers him uh, in verse 22 and 23. And then Jesus answering said unto them, said unto, Go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. Having given those words, John's disciples leave. And as they depart, Jesus then speaks concerning John in 24 through 30. And he speaks of the response, the response of the publican, the publicans or sinners, and the response of the Pharisees and lawyers. And then he moves in quite naturally to discuss the men of this generation, how, they, how the lawyers and Pharisees weren't prepared to appreciate the style and ministry of John, nor were they pleased to appreciate the style of ministry, his message and life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the section we'll be reading. But it's interesting that Luke, immediately following that, then brings in the situation, the event of Jesus entering Simon the Pharisee's home. The Pharisee wanted him there, but didn't give him the respectful welcome that he should have received. And yet a sinner woman gives him that kind of reception. And demonstrates saving faith uh, where the Pharisee uh, is not responding positively to the message, but is hardening his heart. So I think it's helpful for us to see that the pericope we're going to consider in that broader portion of the chapter. So having done that, let me read Luke chapter 7, verses 19 through 35. Luke 7. 19 through 35. And John, calling unto him two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? When the men were come unto him, they said, John the Baptist hath sent us unto thee, saying, Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? 
And in that same hour, he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits. And unto many that were blind, he gave sight. Then Jesus answering said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things ye have seen and heard, how that the blind seek, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached, and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. When the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness for to see? A reed shaken with the wind? What went ye out for you to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in the king's courts. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. For I say unto you, Among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. And the Lord said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation, and to what are they like? They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace, and calling one to another, and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned to you, and ye have not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, And ye say, he hath a devil. The son of man is come, eating and drinking. And ye say, behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of all her children. Ascends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. So our focus will just be on several words here in verse 34, that Jesus not only was called a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, but a friend of publicans and sinners. Here we have a slur used by Christ's opponents. They draw the wrong conclusion from it, but they are accurate uh, factually. I believe this is consistent, and we've seen this uh, we'll see that we see it in Acts eleven twenty six, where the people of the way in Antioch are called first Christians there, and many believe that that was actually a slur that eventually become became a title for the people of God. We see it, don't we? Don't we? In the ministers and parishioners seeking reformation many years ago in the Church of England 
who were labeled not by themselves but their opponents as Puritans. And now we're pleased to use that term to describe them, though that term was originated by their enemies, those who were not at all interested in reformation of the type that they desired to see in God's house in the branch of the Church of England. So why did they call Jesus a friend of sinners? Well, one reason is because he regularly and comfortably interacted with publicans and sinners. He hung out with them and he was comfortable hanging out with them. Secondly, they called him a friend of sinners and publicans because they were not friends of publicans and sinners. And thirdly, Jesus had said publicly many times that he came to seek that which was lost. He came to seek publicans and sinners. He came to, to search out and find them and those that recognize themselves to be such would be brought into his kingdom. Just think of that unique contrast in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Where the Pharisee's prayers don't get through the ceiling. And yet the publican who beats his breast and says, I'm the sinner. Actually, the very words that John Murray apparently spoke as his last words before he went to glory. Be merciful to me, the sinner. So what is friendship? Richard Sibbs, in commenting on Song of Songs, where the Lord speaks to the bride and the groom and calls them friends, he says, in friendship there is a mutual consent, a union of judgment and affections. There is a mutual sympathy in the good and ill one of another as if there were one soul in two bodies. That's a beautiful description of marriage, isn't it? The relationship of husband and wife. But there is a sense where that should be true of our fellowship with one another, our friendship with one another. It's been very encouraging to me, and I'm sure to all of you, to see the new relationships amongst ourselves that have been established over the last few days and to see the growing relationships that have been furthered and have been deepened. It's been a blessing to see the Lord, only by his grace, continue to knit our hearts together in love. But he's also knitting our hearts together with the Lord Jesus in love. He's our friend in John 15, 15, he says to his disciples, Henceforth I call you not servants, but I have called you friends. For in all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Now this is not an absolute statement. That doesn't mean we can never call ourselves servants of the Lord. But what Jesus is saying is I've been progressively telling you more and more. And now in the upper room, he's prepared to say, 
I've let it all out. I've opened my heart to you. I've told you all the Father's told me. But he's also saying, you're to tell me everything. You're to be transparent with me. You're to open your heart to me. And we're those that sing the Psalms. We're those that recognize in the Psalter we have an anatomy of all the affections and emotions, all the dispositions of the redeemed soul. What a beautiful place to express them. But oh, let us not just say those words and fail to actually experience those emotions, those affections. Let us not act as stoics. Let us not compartmentalize and push off, lament, and then sing lament. But know nothing of lament in the soul. Let us not go about singing praise of joy and adoration and not be engaged in our soul. What a beautiful vehicle we have for the expression of our affections to Christ as we grow to appreciate his affection for us. Clearly he has that love for us that is summarized in 1 Corinthians 13, that beginning section. But how about just consider the last few words of verse 7. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. There are a lot of things in our lives that Christ has to bear with. Are there a lot of things in our life that he has to endure with? For sure. Let me just quickly give some vignettes of Christ's friendship for his people through biblical history. Think about him in his exalted state, his state of humiliation, and then in his exalted state. In all three states. How about with Adam? Immediately after the fall, Christ, I believe, comes to Adam and Eve. We hear in verse 8 of chapter 3, the voice of the Lord walking. Now which person of the Godhead do you think that might be? I would contend, at least in my understanding, that is the second person of the Godhead. He immediately comes to restore and to offer the gospel of grace in that proto-euangelion. We see Abraham as the friend of God. We've just seen that in Isaiah 41.8. James also refers to Abraham in James 2.23 as the friend of God. In 2 Chronicles 20 verse 7, God says that Abraham is his friend forever. That means that God's not only Abraham's friend and our friend, but we're his friend. Abraham is his friend and we're his friends. It's mutual. It goes both ways. And have you ever considered it's forever? I'm sure all of us here have experienced 
the severance of close friendships. Because we're sinful, sometimes we reach the point sinfully to say enough's enough. Too much, that's too much pain, too much hurt. I think it's something akin to where in Colossians, Paul tells husbands not to be exacerbated, not to be exacerbated, or exacerbated with their wives or become kind of bitter towards their wives. In other words, as we grow in relationships, we get to know each other better. And guess what happens when that happens? It's a call to more grace. Right? As we see and know one another better, as we begin to open up ourselves to one another, and it's not all pretty. Inside there, is it? And so it calls for great grace. But God offers that to us. We are his friends forever. So wouldn't we expect in the fullness of time, when Christ comes in the fullness of time, to be a friend of sinners? As I mentioned already, it's a dominant theme in the book of Luke. Let me just give you one example Zacchaeus, children of that short little man that had to climb up a tree so he could see over the tall Dutchman. He was a publican. He had extorted plenty of money from people. He was cooperating with a regime that had its heel upon the people of God. And he was taking more than he should have so he could put some in his own pocket. And yet Jesus went to his house. And Jesus, as Zacchaeus, demonstrates faith and a willing, willingness to commit to retribution and to payment to those that had done him wrong according to the Mosaic law. Jesus is prepared to say, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. Jesus came to seek the publican Matthew. And I think there in Matthew's invitation to kind of a party after his coming into Christian discipleship, it's pretty obvious he must have invited a lot of publicans there. And Jesus comes. It's a beautiful picture of just how sometimes early in the Christian life we may have some of the greatest opportunities for witness to the heathen. Because we were just one of them. And so we can invite them to church. We can witness the Lord Jesus Christ's love and favor towards us. But Jesus goes in the midst of them. He went in the midst of the wedding at Cana. Do you not think some people drank too much wine there? Do you think there may have been some things that were said that were inappropriate that may have Jesus may have heard? And yet he was there amongst them. He deals with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. He deals graciously with the woman taken in adultery. He heals lepers. People that no Jew would want to be near. Outcasts from the community of faith. Not welcome in 
the temple. And he was even willing to go and spend time with Pharisees. Those that he knew were only trying to cleanse the outward part of the cup. But who were disgusting and filthy and dark within the cup. That's our Savior. The same forever. And so would we not expect in his exalted state, after having been willing to take upon himself the curse of the covenant for us, his friends, willing to undergo the wrath of God, experience the pangs of hell for all of his elect, would we not expect that at the right hand of God, he would still be our friend? Yes, indeed, he still is. Think of just two passages in Paul's writings in Hebrews. Hebrews 4.16 Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. So I opened up our invocation in reference to this. Certainly, we come to corporate worship, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. Is it not a time of need for us to have God's grace? God, for God to assist us in this endeavor. But I would ask you, when is there ever a time that we're not in need of God's grace in our walk to the heavenly city? Is there ever a time where we're not needy people? Even Adam, before the fall, was still finite. And some of us oftentimes forget that as we continue to put more and more upon our plate. Those of us that by temperament and nature are very task-oriented, And sometimes like that we can neglect relationships and we can place upon ourselves way more than than can be handled by a human. Jesus never overextended himself. And we must not. But there's always a need for grace. Always a need for mercy. And so let us come boldly. Because we don't come in our own merit, we come in the merit of of our Savior, our bridegroom, also our friend, also our elder brother, and we could multiply the metaphors. Paul, also speaking of Christ in Hebrews 7.25, says he is able also to save or to deliver them to the uttermost that come unto God by him or through him. Why? seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He's always our advocate. He's always praying to the Father. He's always, through his work, purifying the incense that we offer in our corporate, family, and private prayers. That's his work. 
And he's our friend forever. And these are just glimpses of his work for us as our friend at present. So I'm going to turn to application a little quicker quicker than I ordinarily would in a sermon. I want to bring a warning, a comfort, and a challenge. A warning, a comfort, and a challenge. I want to speak a warning to any of you present here or may hear the words that are being spoken in other settings. For Jesus to be your friend, you must flee to him. He has condescended to sinners like you and like I, like the rest of us here. Some of us who sought to think for a time that we were going to be saved through our works who were so busy cleansing the outward part of our cups. And some of us that really didn't care how nasty the outward part of the cup was or the inward until God got a hold of us. But that's the picture that's being drawn between the Pharisees and the sinners. Not all sinners and publicans that Jesus interacted with came to faith. There were still many of them that he interacted with that are presently undergoing the pangs of hell forever. But many of them were drawn to him. And then, not all of the Pharisees ignored, or as we say, as it says in verse 30, rejected the counsel of God. I think we have a Nicodemus, I don't know, I don't think it's necessary to decide when he became a believer, but I think through Christ's ministry over time, by the time of Christ's death and resurrection, I believe he was a believer. So will you justify God like the publicans and sinners did, as it references in verse 29, or will you reject the counsel of God? Will you reject the call to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ? As your prophet to teach you, as your priest to intercede for you, as your king to rule over you and defend you, will you embrace him as he is freely offered to you in the gospel? Today is the day of salvation, and wisdom is justified of her children. Those that do so demonstrate that they, by God's grace, have become wise unto salvation. Not a wisdom that we could make in ourselves. None of us could ever come to a logical understanding apart from the grace of God to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. But God has made many of us present here today wise unto salvation. Oh, may he make you wise unto salvation as well. Flee to him while he may be found. But secondly, I want to bring comfort and oh to Christians. Oh how comfortable believer. Oh how comfortable brethren our lives would be if we might reflect and embrace the fact that Jesus is our friend. 
Jesus is a friend to all his people. As we saw in John 15, 15, he's opened his heart to us and we ought to open our hearts to him. He's our friend forever, as we've seen in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7. While on earth, Jesus was also a friend of those who weren't his people. Right? Sinners who did recognize they were sinners and sinners who did not recognize they were sinners. Christ would go and dine with Pharisees, though he knew they didn't care anything about him. He would go and be with publican sinners, though they certainly didn't add to his credibility. But he did so in hopes of doing both of those kinds of people good. That's what he did. He was comfortable in all socioeconomic settings. And he's an example to us in that. The other thing I would say is his love, he loves us even when he is displeased with us. I want you to get that. Because I don't think I've understood that very well in my Christian life. He loves us even when he is displeased with us. This may be a shock, but you can be too binary. I've been too binary on this point. I thought that God's love and his displeasure were like a light switch. He loves me until I disobey, and then he's displeased with me, like his love stops. Is that the way you fathers deal with a wayward child? I hope not. No, God doesn't deal with us that way. I found much comfort recently in Thomas Goodwin's work on the opening of Christ's heart. There he says, your very sins move him to pity more than anger. He's not saying their sins don't move him to anger, but they move him to pity more than the anger. Yea, his pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease, and I added, or sin. His bowels shall be more drawn out to you, and as much as when you lie under sin as any other affliction. So even when you're in pain for your sin... Sometimes we're in pain because we've been persecuted. Sometimes we're in pain because pruning hurts. Sometimes we're in pain of our own will. We've chosen the wrong path and we're getting the brambles and the spanking that we deserve. But even in that spanking, there's a growing love. The love is not stopped for us, his people. You see, in Proverbs 18.24, there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Oh, for friends that stick closer than a brother. But how about Jesus Christ that sticks closer than any of our human horizontal friends could ever stick? He is uniquely that friend 
that sticks closer to a brother. I'm going to read portion of a hymn. We'll never sing hymns in a PRC, but occasionally we do quote them. And when I say we'll never sing them, I just mean we won't sing them in corporate worship. Um, Some of you may have sung some of them this morning, and some may sing them this week. Remember the hymn by J. Wilbur Chapman? Jesus, what a friend of sinners. Jesus, what a friend of sinners, opens the first verse. The second verse opens, Jesus, what a strength in weakness. Have you experienced any weakness lately? Have you experienced any weakness ever in the Christian life? Do you have any sensitivity? If you're alive, you know what weariness is. Jesus, what a help in sorrow. Have we not all experience sorrow? Are we not all experiencing sorrow? Even as we consider what is in front of our dear brother Brad Freeman and our dear sister, Mrs. Gebby. Yeah, we know they're, Lord willing, they'll be taken to glory just like the rest of us will. And yet there's a deep sorrow, isn't there? And we see the effects ravaged upon them because of the fall. Jesus, what a strength and weakness, what a help in sorrow. Jesus, what a guide and keeper. Have some, not, have some of us not lost direction quite regularly in our lives? Do we don't often need the Savior to speak to us through his word, to be the compass, the guide, a light to our feet and a lamp to our path, So we see where we're at, so we can know where to go. He's that kind of guide. And do do we not need a keeper? I know some of you feel pretty confident that you can defend yourself very well. But none of us believe we can defend ourselves completely, do we? He is that hedge. More than all in him I find... He hath granted me forgiveness. I am his. I'm his friend. And he is mine. He's my friend. What a comfort. What a comfort. Now comfort comes here in the middle of the three applications. I want you to understand That is the most important of the applications I've given you today. But I think there's a logical order. And I didn't want to give the challenge before the comfort. It just didn't seem quite right. Having that comfort, knowing that Jesus is our friend, that ought to motivate us to be a friend to those that are within and without. That ought to motivate us and encourage us. Isn't it lovely to see when brethren dwell together in unity? Isn't it a beautiful thing? And we're told in John 13, 34, and 35 that it's even a beautiful thing to some that are without when they see it within. 
Think about how love was expressed in the establishment of the diaconate in Acts 6. I contend we don't know, really, whether that group of widows was actually being neglected in the daily distribution. All we know is that they had a complaint. They certainly thought they were. And when the presbyters took it up in the church in Jerusalem, they recognized there's something we can do. There's something we ought to do. Because we've been neglecting the word of prayer. And as they expressed their love in the establishment of the diaconate and the widows, both the Grecian Jews as well as the Hebrew Jews, were taken care of. It says that there were many then that came to believe. Even some Pharisees, we're told, came to believe in the Lord. Yet Jesus in 13, John 13, 34 and 35 says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. So when we love one another, we're sending a message to those without. I would also contend, contend we're learning to practice love that we can practice on those that are without. Because there's still many difficulties in loving one another. As we learn to exercise that love and grow in our patience and forbearance with one another, that can help us to exercise those graces so we can exercise them with more difficult friends sometimes. Oh, that none of us might be like those described in Isaiah 65, 1 through 5. Do you remember that description? I'm sure most of you remember verse 5. God speaking of those which say, stand by thyself, come not near to me, I am holier than thou. The end of that verse says, and describes what God thinks of them. These are smoke in my nose, a fire that burneth all the day. God is not pleased at all with that kind of sanctimonious behavior. Encourage you, fathers, sometime this week, read to your family verses 1 through 5. See the description of these people that would do such amongst the people of God, even. Stand apart. You're second class, we're first class. There's a division, the curtains are going to be closed between the first class now. Humble purity, by God's grace, draws the impure to itself. But proud sanctity repels the sinner. Do you understand that? Humble purity, humble godliness. If we grow in grace, we're growing downward. But if we think we're growing upward... And our growth in grace is not producing humility. It's not growth in grace. You need to get that right. Proud sanctity only repels. It may 
attract some other people that like proud sanctity. You may be able to grow your church that way if that's really what you care about in terms of numerical growth. But if we want to see true prosperity and health in our souls, we need to recognize we grow in humility, and that itself is an attraction to needy sinners. But think about how Peter stumbled at Antioch, as Paul describes it. Paul ordinarily, I'm sure, covered the multitude of sins amongst those that were his colleagues uh, and Peter as well. But he believed there was a need to explain this to the Galatians, given the struggles that they were having, the fact that they were tempted to grow weary as James preached on or taught on earlier this week. They were tempted. They were growing weary. They wanted some easy solution. Maybe it's circumcision and commitment to all the Mosaic law. Maybe that will really raise us to the first class seats. But Paul says that before that certain men came from James, Peter didn't eat with the Gentiles, did eat with the Gentiles. But when these guys came from James, he withdrew and separated himself. He decided he wanted to spend some more time with the buds. There were Jews. There were more like him. Easy to fall into, isn't it? But he was violating a biblical principle that the wall of separation had been broken down. And so Paul says that he had feared those that were the circumcision. He was demonstrating hypocrisy at that point. He wasn't a hypocrite, but he was demonstrating hypocrisy. We all... I hope, many, I hope we're not hypocrites, but we all regularly demonstrate hypocrisy. He says he feared those that were the circumcision. He not only wanted to be with the circumcised, but he, didn't, he was worried about what the circumcised guys that came from James might think of him by sitting with the Gentiles. In that table versus that table over at the fellowship meal. He was so concerned about what they thought that he got up and went over and spent time with them. And Paul says, that is a serious issue right now. Let that not be so with us. Let us love those that are within. We're friends because we're brothers. Let us stick close like brothers. Let us stick even closer because we're brothers of the Lord. Now, we're also called to be friends with those that are without. And I would ask you, are we as local congregations, are we as a presbytery friends of sinners? And are you and me, individually, I'm speaking to myself as much as everyone here, are we friends of sinners? Sinners do nasty things. They dress nasty, they smell nasty, sometimes their speech is nasty, sometimes their habits are nasty, sometimes they say things that are inappropriate, we wish our children had not heard, we wish we didn't have to deal with those things, we wish we hadn't heard. But Jude, the Lord through Jude says to us in Jude 22 and 23, of some have compassion, making a difference, 
and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. You have to rush into a home burning to save someone. You're going to get some soot on your nice suit. And you may not like the way the person has been been behaving. You may not like the fact that they themselves caused that fire. Because of their drunkenness and pot smoking or whatever else led to the fire. But you still are going to go rush over there and get them out. And so we must do so spiritually. Spurgeon could say, some people appear to like to have philanthropic love towards all the fallen, but they would not want to touch them with tongs. Are we like that too often? And pastors and elders, I would speak to you, I'm speaking to myself. Do we sometimes fall into the trap of thinking we're administering a showcase in our local congregations rather than a hospital? What are we administering? A hospital or a showcase? Are we trying to make everything just so in our families to appear like we got it all together when we know we don't? Is that putting extra pressure on the minister, on the elders, on the heads of homes? Yes, we want biblical order in our homes. Yes, we're called to meticulous law-keeping. Yes, and yet, can we not make an idol of it in the sense that we begin to just be concerned about the outward part of the mug, the outward part of the cup? Do, do, is that what we're trying to do? Just create that marketing picture so we can market that. As I said, that, that is proud sanctity that really repels true sinners. It may increase our membership numbers a little bit, but that's not what we want. That's not what we want. We're hospitals. We're lighthouses. We're not showcases. Alexander McLaren said, I'll close with this, not a gentleman I often quote from the pulpit, but he said this, Brethren, if the church begins to lose its care for and its power of drawing outcasts and sinners, it has begun to lose its hold on Christ. I think he speaks truth. One of the effects of our loosening our grip on the Lord Jesus Christ is that we will begin to lose our care for outcasts and marginalized in our communities. Let's rethink that. Unbelievers in closing, flee to Christ while he may be found. I'm sure you would love to have some a best friend, a best friend better than the friend you have right now, unbeliever. There is one that would be a much better friend than your spouse or your best friend here, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's that best friend.
Flee to him while he may be found. And believers, be comforted in the friendship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we seek by his grace to cultivate our friendships with those in our communities, in our faith communities, in our local congregations, our presbytery, but let us also seek to cultivate those friendships with those in our community, those in our workplace, and with our brothers and sisters and cousins and aunts and uncles in the flesh. And let us remember, let us remember that we are called to walk a friend forever, just as he was a friend to Abraham forever and still is a friend to Abraham. Let us be reminded he is our friend and we are his friends forever. Let us pray. Please rise for prayer. Great God and Heavenly Father, we do come to thy throne of grace seeking mercy. We thank thee, O Lord, that Jesus is indeed a friend to sinners. We thank thee that he has condescended to reach down to us in our sinful state. We thank thee that he loved us before we've even come to Christ. We thank thee that in thy counsels thou hast ordained to bring us to thyself. And we thank thee that there is innumerable multitude of every tribe, race, kindred, and tongue, and of every socioeconomic grouping that are yet to come to thee. May you give us the grace to act in all those situations. Help us to humble ourselves and indeed be friends to sinners, sinners who recognize it and sinners who don't. Be pleased also Lord, to comfort us and particularly to comfort Brad Freeman and Karen Gebby as they struggle with what is upon them and what, what awaits them. May you be pleased to be gracious unto them in these days and to their families. May they know the peace that passes all understanding, O Lord. And may you be gracious to them and their families in this very needy hour. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please turn with me to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. Let us sing to God's praise.
stand to receive the benediction of our God. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Amen.